You got you. You're wonderful. There we go. That's my fault. Just for reference, when you go to turn your mic off of mute, don't accidentally mute it instead. And trust the sound guy that he's got his your life in his hands. Because he does. Thank you, Ron. Well, hi, friends. Thanks for coming to church this weekend. Also, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us and tuning in and for being part of what God is doing here at Capitol. Uh, this week, we continue our series called Overflowing Hope where we're examining the biblical ingredients of hope. Through the first three weeks of this series, we looked at a particular prayer found in Romans 15, written by the Apostle Paul, that shows how the God of hope fills us, not by dumping hope into our bucket, but by creating a chemical reaction of ingredients with all joy and all peace, as we trust in Him. When these three ingredients combine... Hope overflows from our souls and into our lives and onto the lives around us. When hope is present, we walk differently. We live differently. However, if any of these ingredients are lacking, our hope comes up short. See, when we lack joy, we often lack ingratitude. We exchange our thankfulness for criticism and complaint. Our focus shifts firmly onto our problems and our pain and off of the power and potential of God. Likewise, if we lack peace, we wade in worry. Hope gives way to fear as we panic about what we cannot control. Focus again lands firmly on me. I must live up to expectations. I need to get everything right. I can't let anyone down. We scramble to prove ourselves, and we begin to trust in our ability to make peace over God's plan to bring peace. Now, if both the ingredients of joy and peace, oh, sorry, pardon me, both the ingredients of joy and peace in this recipe are provided by God, He fills us with joy and peace as we trust in Him. Our control isn't over how much joy and peace we have in our lives. Paul says we have access to all joy and peace. We have an abundant supply from God. The problem is, if we don't believe that we can trust Him, we frantically hurry to manage our lives to escape failure and disappointment and rejection. We rush to secure safety, stability, and success. And in doing so, we exchange joy and peace for criticism and exhaustion. Now that is a recipe for discouragement, not hope. Have any of you in the room or watching online felt critical or exhausted this year? Yeah, me too. A little more than I would like to admit. But today we're going to talk about why. We're going to look at one reason why our hope can come up short when we need it most. Because my friends, as we'll find today, hope, true hope, isn't something you just go and get. It's something that we can grow. And that God grows in us. The Apostle Paul suggests that hope is cultivated, not acquired. Before we go any further... 
Let's invite God to speak, shall we? Lord, as we gather together today and dive into your word, many of us come with overwhelming burdens. We come with heavy hearts that are worried about what will happen next. Many of us even find ourselves in a hopeless place today. And Lord, I pray that it is from these places that we can find hope. Lord, I pray that you reveal to everyone here whether they came through these doors hopeful or hopeless, that you are the God of hope. And it is in you that we can grow our hope. And it is in you that we can find hope. Help us to hear what you have to teach us today. I ask, Lord, that you help me to speak from your word with clarity and with truth and with love. We pray these things in the name of our King Jesus, who overcame our suffering because of his great love for us. Amen. Amen. Have you ever misused a phrase or a word? Over the years, it's become commonplace for people to misuse the word irregardless. Which, by the way, is not a word. However... Some dictionaries have actually begun acknowledging its meaning, which we already have a word for. It's regardless. <laughs> which means to not pay attention to a present situation, despite prevailing circumstances. If you were to look up the definition of regardless, do you know what you'd find? Regardless. Literally, the word regardless. Speaking of literally, recently some dictionaries took to redefining the word literally because of its widespread misuse. If you look up the word literally today on the old Google, you'll find its original definition, a literal manner or sense. Exactly. Now, you'll also find an informal definition to express strong feeling while not being literally true. Which is literally not what that word means. Have you ever been so hungry that you had hunger pains? No, you haven't. Because the word is hunger pains. The, the word pain was used to refer to the sudden and painful contractions during childbirth. Thus its association to hunger. Have you ever been fooled by someone's smooth sleight of hand? Actually, their sleight of hand deceived you. Slight, S-L-E-I-G-H-T, is a word that describes someone's use of cunning and dexterity for deception, as opposed to slight, which means small in degree, not sturdy, or to insult someone. Maybe you've come across someone who is the absolute spitting image of their father. But of course, what you really see is that they are the spit and image of their father. The term can be credited to a 16th century text in which the author referred to similarities of a parent and a child as though they, the child had been spit out of their mouth. However, many scholars also believe it's biblical in nature, referring to God's creation of Adam. 
Now, if you think that's all, well, then you've got another thing coming. Or more accurately, you've got another think coming. That's right, the word is actually think. The phrase works either way, but its original meaning implied that your initial thought or idea would soon be replaced by a new belief, as opposed to the more threatening implications of the former. If you're ever in need of an escape goat, try a, try a scapegoat instead. <laughs> Next time you're jiving with your friends, just remember that if you're not dancing, you're probably jibing with your friends. Or this week, maybe you just have piles of work on your desk and you need to pawn off a few things. Try to palm off a few things instead. For all intensive purposes, Try the phrase, for all intents and purposes, for more clarity and less intensity. (laughs) But if for some reason you feel the need to do anything but naked this week, please understand that it is buck naked and do not do that. (laughs) Over the years, for many reasons that that are good, and some that are confusing, and others that are downright ridiculous we begin to redefine and infuse new meaning into words and phrases. With time and a bit of distance, these words can come to mean completely different things than they originally intended, which can cause us to betray the intent of these words. Hope is a word that we've come to redefine and misuse. Too often in our modern context, we've reduced hope to just wishful thinking. In other contexts, we stripped it down to being a thing that we either have or that we don't. Now, both these lines of thinking don't really align with the biblical author's definitions of hope. See, hope is, for all intents and purposes, a noun. It's a thing that we can have. I can have hope that things will get better. I can put my hope in God. But it's also by definition of herb. It's something that we do. See, I'm hoping that tomorrow might be better than today. Or we hope that things will all work out. Hope is a word that implies both present action and future confidence. It is both a disposition and a discipline. And hope has the power to keep us hoping. See, when we trust God both in what he's done and what he's doing, we know that from Romans 15 that God fills us with all joy and all peace and we overflow with hope. This is the hope that we have. It's the noun. When hope then is put to the test through suffering and we endure, this is hoping. It's the verb of hope. As God proves our hope through suffering, we are then left with a greater hope the noun again, which then produces an even greater ability to hope, the verb, through hard things. God grows our hope through our hoping. This is why if we want to have hope when we need it most, we need to constantly cultivate hope. As we begin to look at hope through this lens, we can begin to see the kind of hope that can be grown in dark times. 
we begin to get a picture of a powerful and potent skill that can be grown in unexpected places. It's because of this kind of perspective that the Apostle Paul claims that suffering is not just something that we need hope for. My friends, it is something that we can get hope from. Romans 5 verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Paul argues, contrary to popular belief, suffering does not weaken your hope. It proves it. Many doubters in Paul's day would have seen suffering as an indication of God's displeasure. And many doubters today may look at suffering as an indication that God has abandoned you, that God doesn't care, or even that there is no God at all. And even if there is, you certainly can't trust him. But again, Paul says, if you think that, you've got another thing coming. Now to see what Paul's getting at here in Romans, there are a couple things we need to understand. First, Paul assumes that suffering is a sure thing. Paul writes this letter to the Jews and Gentiles in Rome, followers of Jesus who experienced suffering and oppression firsthand. Suffering was almost certain to be part of their story. The key for believers in Rome wasn't to run away and escape suffering. They had to learn how to live in it. Now, we may not live in the same kind of oppression and suffering today, yet we still have to endure suffering on a regular basis. Whether injustice, chronic pain, illness, conflict, or circumstance, suffering is present across the world on an ongoing basis every day. Suffering is not a Rome problem, it is a world problem. So Paul's assumption seems reliable. Suffering is a sure thing. My friends, that does not make suffering a good thing. You want to know how to get gut-punched into oblivion? Just walk up to someone in the middle of arguably the worst day of their life and tell them just how wonderful suffering is for their character. It's sure to go well. For many of you in the room, you actually have first-hand familiarity with true suffering too. Some of you have been waiting on a doctor who can help you figure out what's going on in your body. And you've been waiting for years. Still no answer. Still no path forward. Still no hope and healing. Just pain and misery every day. And the questions. Others of you have been fighting addiction for years. Navigating cravings and temptations every moment of every day just wondering which battle you'll lose next you live with the constant fear of what will happen next and no hope in what can maybe today you're wrestling with a crumbling and broken relationship it's a desperate fight just to get out of bed every day and every battle gets more overwhelming A couple of weeks ago, I let my wife Shelly know that I plan to speak this week. 
Now, I need to give you some background for the story. First of all, my wife Shelly is wonderfully encouraging and supportive. Second, Shelly is no stranger to suffering. See, she's endured more than most should have to in a lifetime. So I let her know, knowing full well her story, that I'll be speaking from Romans 5 about how suffering is a source of hope. She immediately stops what she's doing, and she looks at me in that slightly perplexed, where are you going with this tone? So I tell her, I'm going to talk about Romans 5. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character, she interrupts, oh, I hate that verse. I know where she's coming from. And I'll be honest, I don't think she's wrong. Suffering is miserable in all its forms. And just because God can bring good from our suffering does not make suffering good. It makes God good. Too often this verse has been used to tell suffering people that their suffering is okay. And it's not. That's not the point. Again, just because good can come from something doesn't make that something good. It makes our God good. When my nephew was a toddler, he reached up and stuck his hand on a hot grill. He got his fingers lodged in between the grates of the grill severely burned his hand. It was gruesome and horrible. Now this moment of suffering was not necessary for my nephew to learn a valuable life lesson about hot things. But he did learn it. He, he also learned that he can overcome pain. He also learned that he can heal. These two lessons have chased him through his adventures in motocross as well. See, my nephew's burnt fingers aren't a good thing. But the lessons he learned certainly can be. The same heat used to grill burgers is the same heat that was used to destroy my nephew's fingers. And the same suffering used to temper our hope is the same suffering that causes people to wail in pain and heartache. My friends, suffering is not good. God is. Look, if you are in the middle of a full-blown nightmare of failure and affliction, whether by your own doing, sheer circumstance, or even dumb luck, I am not trying to tell you that your suffering or your hurt is okay. That you need to just buck up and deal with it. And I don't think that's what Paul is trying to say either. However, I do think Paul is trying to convey something very crucial about hope and what suffering has to do with it. And just maybe there's something that we can learn. In the dregs of heartache, in the depths of your suffering, even in the waves of your despair, God isn't dropping hope in your lap. He's cultivating it in your soul. Back to Romans 5, verse 3. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. 
That word translated here as glory is often translated as boast. It's a word that suggests both a confidence and a joy. So essentially, Paul says, you can take a joyful confidence in your suffering. Paul uses the term in other areas as well. Notably, in 2 Corinthians, when he talks about boasting in our weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. On both occasions, Paul draws attention to what God does in our worst moments and props them up as moments to boast. Not only does suffering and even weakness cause something transformative within us, it puts on display the power of God to the world. The simple truth is that our suffering has the potential to show what God can do. If you ever have the chance to look at an original Impressionist impressionist painting, you may note the thickness of the paint on the canvas. See, Impressionist painters employed a method of color blending called optical mixing, where they would mix and blend the colors directly on the canvas rather than on a palette. This method of placing down with intentionality incomplete strokes with the intention of refining and blending them together with future brushstrokes was used to create a masterpiece. Because of the necessity for the colors to blend together on the canvas, the artist would typically need to complete the entire painting while it was still wet. If you look closely at a painting like this, you'll be able to note the vibrant and partially mixed colors that from close appear messy, even chaotic. But from a distance, blend together to create a beautiful masterpiece. These incredible works of art are just simply mountains of unfinished brushstrokes upon unfinished brushstrokes and half-blended colors that somehow create something beautiful. These works show what the artist can do. They reveal the handiwork of the painter for the world to see. Your suffering, and even your weakness, is being transformed into a masterpiece in every single moment. Each moment, each weakness, on its own, may show a mess of brokenness and failure. But in the hands of the artist, how compose something undeniably beautiful. Paul elaborates about weakness and hardship in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul explains how our hardship points the world toward God. He says, because of this, I'm happy to hold up my suffering as a beacon. Paul also shows us that we are all designed with a full set of features to overcome suffering. As I said before, I'm not implying that this makes hard things good things. And it doesn't excuse what you're going through. 
It just suggests that there truly is evidence that you can get through this because of who he is. See, if you cultivate hope, you don't have to go and acquire it. The idea is simple. If you grow your own food, you don't have to go to the grocery store. As you cultivate hope, you don't have to go looking for it. It's there when you need it. But if you neglect the garden, you're going to go hungry. So make sure you're constantly cultivating your hope. Back to verse 3 of Romans 5 once again. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Now, sufferings here translates the Greek word flipsis, which is a pretty fun word to say. Flipsis. It's also not a very fun word to live. It essentially means something along the lines of pressure or distress or even affliction. Here's why this word matters. Paul is not talking about minor conveniences. Pardon me, inconveniences. It's a word that indicates true hardship and distress. It's a strong word. So Paul indicates that we can take joyful confidence in those things that utterly wreck us. Like an unexpected diagnosis. Or a failed investment. Or a devastating divorce. Even in this misery, God is up to something. And I want to be clear. Paul suggests that we are to glory in our suffering, not just in the midst of them. This implies that our sufferings are far more than just something to get through. It means that something is happening in the suffering that is worth our time and attention. It's in this place that we need to open our eyes and look for what God is doing. It's in this space that God is doing the work of transformation. I want you to consider for a moment the process of metalsmithing, in which a trained metalsmith will take raw material and superheat it into a liquid. This process causes the impurities to rise to the surface, where the metalsmith will then remove anything that could compromise the metal. They then refine and reform the metal into an object that now yields a strength greater than its original. They continue the reforming process by placing that tool back into the fire and then removing it and beating it repeatedly into shape. They then repeat this process several times until they have reshaped the metal into an exact shape redesigned for a specific purpose. In much the same way, the refining and reshaping of our souls that occurs in no other way than through the hardship of suffering has the potential to produce a stronger and exact shape for a powerful purpose. It is within our our suffering that God is cultivating a hope stronger than anything we could get on our own. And what happens when he does... Back to Romans, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance translates the word hupomene, sometimes translated as endurance. 
Think of Hopamine as a patient enduring. It's not just the ability to get through hard things, it's the ability to get through hard things with composure. It's more than just surviving. There's a steadfastness to it. Paul uses the same term in a detailed list of harsh personal sufferings to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 4. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. Paul elaborates just a couple verses later, verse 9, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Note the simultaneous acknowledgement both of suffering and hope in Paul's words. Known, yet unknown, dying, yet living, sorrowful, but rejoicing, having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul writes like someone who knows hope exists in the darkness. That suffering does not disqualify your hope, it proves it over and over. This is the kind of hope that you cultivate, you don't acquire. As biblical commentator Douglas Moo explains, sufferings, rather than threatening or weakening our hope, as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty of hope. And from perseverance, we get character. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character. Now the word for character in this passage speaks of something being tried and true. It's been tested and proven. This is the kind of character that results from having gone through difficulty and now knowing with confidence that it can be done. It's a resolved and tempered character. Mu elaborates, the constant affirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances will bring ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that for which we hope. Mu and Paul both argue that it is through the experience of our suffering that we emerge with a stronger and deeper hope than, than could have existed without that experience. We boast in our sufferings because they can produce a character and a confidence that would otherwise not exist. A stronger, more resolved, and more resilient hope. If the ingredients to hope, joy, peace, and trust, cause hope to overflow, then it is in the baking of those ingredients through hardships that produces the hope we need for hard times. Now, don't get me wrong. Cookie dough can be delicious. But there is nothing quite like a freshly baked chocolate chip cookie. And apparently, there's nothing quite like a freshly baked hope either. Romans chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says, you can trust this hope. 
It is a hope that can withstand what you face. A hope refined by suffering, tried through hardship, and rooted in God. It will not let you be put to shame. It will not disappoint you. It will not let you down. If you have spent the past year buried in loneliness and darkness and depression, there is hope. If you have been trudging along day after day, dealing with a difficult boss and difficult conversation after painful conversation, there is hope. If you have been stuck in chronic pain, sidelined from your own life, watching experiences and moments get robbed from your fingertips, moment by moment, there is hope. If you are staring down a horrible diagnosis and you're drowning in mounting questions and fear, there's hope. Because if it feels like you can't find hope right now, you can cultivate it. Paul says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. See, hope makes its roots in God's love. Not in outcomes, not in circumstances, but in the character of a loving God. When we know that he is good, we can find hope in what he's doing. The phrase God's love in this passage has two possible interpretations. See, it can refer to both God's love for us and our love for God. Now, at first glance, it's easy to just assume that Paul is referring to God's love for us. It makes sense in context. It reinforces Paul's primary points on hope. However, as I said, it can actually be translated both ways. And it's easy to overlook the potency of the other minority interpretation of our love for God. See, God's love for us is the ultimate display of selfless love placed at its climax through Jesus' death on the cross. But what would be a greater motivator for Jesus to die on the cross? Is it that we loved him or that he loved us? Well, Paul clarifies this point just verses later in verse 8. He says, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This makes clear that Jesus died on a cross, not because we loved him, but because he loved us. In a similar fashion, as much as we can be motivated by the love and even sacrifice of someone for us, it is ultimately the love that is then poured into us through their sacrifice that becomes the motivator of our future devotion. It is Jesus' love for us that becomes our hope, the noun. And because of his unwavering love for us, we are then filled with a deep love for God that enables us to keep hoping, the verb, through suffering. And this produces yet an even greater hope. My friends, it's love. The love of God is the greatest reason for hope in hopeless moments. It is in the depths of darkness, at the peak of hopelessness, that God sent his son into the world to give us hope. It is in this 
Christmas season that we remember that truth the most. God entered into a suffering world, walked through it all the way up to the cross to take our suffering on his shoulders to cultivate an unshakable hope, a hope that is proven through his suffering that will not put us to shame. It is a hope that says that you can do this. It is in the soil of love that God cultivates hope. And it is in that same soil that we cultivate hope in this world together with him. Let's pray. Lord, whether we walked through these doors today full of hope or full of fear or full of questions, I pray that we walk back through them hopeful. Hopeful that you are cultivating hope in our souls right now, in spite of our circumstances. I pray we leave here today firmly fixed on the truth that even in our sufferings, you cultivate good things. And I pray that we can trust in your goodness. I pray for my friends today who are drowning in the depths of suffering. I pray, God, that you fill their souls to the brim with all joy and all peace so that they overflow with hope that keeps them hoping through their darkest moments. God, I pray that in this season, you help us to cultivate an unshakable hope, a hope that is rooted in the depths of your love poured out on the cross, a moment of unfathomable suffering that produced immeasurable hope. Lord, I pray you help us to trust in that hope. I thank you, God, that not only can we have this kind of hope in you, God, but I'm grateful that you won't let that hope put us to shame. So Lord, continue to help us hope through hardship as we trust you. And pray these things in the name of our King who poured out his life on the cross to give us hope. Amen. Homework. We love homework here at Capitol, so here's some homework. Um, I have a promise for you though. Uh, I want to make homework fun. Now note, I said I want to, not that it will be. There are a lot of ways that you can cultivate hope in your life. But I find that one of the best ways is to take my focus off of my problems and to put it on something better. And I think celebrations and fun things are a great way to lighten the load of life. There's a lot of research behind the role that both challenge and fun play in our growth and endurance for hard things. Studies around grit reveal that for athletes who embrace challenge they actually find training more fun than those that don't. Now, while we might not all find training fun, some of us may need to be intentional about how we infuse some fun into our training. For me personally, I hate running. Like, I, I loathe running. It's like the worst thing ever. Uh, m- my body hurts. I've got back and knee problems. I don't find it enjoyable. In fact, I kind of find it boring. Sorry, runners. <laughs> I know there's a lot of you in the room. 
However, I can play soccer for hours and not once complain about my back or knee pain. I don't even glance at the thought of it being boring. The irony is, I actually run harder and run longer when I play soccer than when I go for a run. So, here's what I'm saying. If you're in desperate need of hope in this season, I want to encourage you to make your faith fun. Find ways to infuse fun things into your disciplines in this season. Here's a couple things that might help. First, celebrate Advent. Advent started yesterday, so you're a day behind, but I think you can catch up. Advent signifies a four-week season in the church calendar leading up to Christmas. It's a time in which many believers look to celebrate the arrival or Advent of Jesus. Different Christian backgrounds celebrate the season a little differently, and there are several resources around Advent, including anything from Advent calendars to candles to Advent study guides and so on. The Advent season, as I said, runs from December 2nd up to Christmas, so if you start now, you're going to be okay. Here's the reason. Celebrating Advent may be a great tool to refocus your soul on the hope of God. It also may be a great way to create some space for God to fill you with all joy and all peace in this season as you look to trust in him. To go through whatever you're going through. Now I want to give you a great resource for this. The Bible Project has come out with an Advent guide. The link is on the screen, so if you want to take a photo or a screenshot so that you can have it. Um, they, the Bible Project has wonderful content, but they've, they've come out with a downloadable PDF um, around Advent. So this is one way that you can look to learn a little bit more about Advent. And they've had some videos that go along with this and a way that you can study and celebrate Advent in this season. So I encourage you to check it out. Finally, bake some cookies. In a previous iteration of this message, I talked about cookies a lot. However, in the end, I went up scrapping all of it. That's just the way it goes sometimes when you're writing a message. But the idea of mixing cookie dough reflects well on Paul's recipe of hope found in Romans 15. And the thought of baking cookies acts as a great analogy for tempering our hope through hard times. So here's the idea. Go home and bake some cookies. And as you do, Reflect on the, on the recipe of hope found in Romans 15. Consider the raw ingredients combining to make something far better. As you place the cookies in the oven, reflect on God's work to bake your hope. The way he takes the hope you have and transforms it into a greater and more confident hope. Finally, relax and enjoy a few cookies. And then, go give the rest away to a neighbor or friend just to give them a little hope in this season. Now, this is something you can do with your kids as a family if you have them. Something you can do with friends or neighbors or roommates. But as you do, bake your cookies and talk about Romans 15 and talk about Romans 5. Get with your kids, gather them together, have some fun baking some cookies and talk about Romans 15 and talk about Romans 5. Right? Maybe grab a neighbor. Maybe find someone who you know wants nothing to do with God in the season and bake them some cookies and do it together and talk about Romans 15 and Romans 5. It is a wonderful way to have some fun cultivating your hope this season. The graphic from this message will be available online later today. If you're in need of hope today, I want to encourage you to seek out our prayer team at the front after the service.
We have some wonderful volunteers who would love the opportunity to pray with you and for you today. You can also send us an email anytime, care at capitalchurch.com, and we'd love to pray with you there as well. For today, this is my prayer for you. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace as you trust in him, that you overflow with hope. And as you overflow with hope, may you find a deeper and richer hope for your darkest days that carries you to your brightest. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.